um, if you're new with us, um, if you could send your, your child um, this direction, uh, your child will be cared for and um, learn about Jesus and have a great time. Thank you, David, for um, leading worship, shepherding us. Um, well, happy Father's Day to you fathers, and uh, I hope you're going to be celebrated, uh, preferably with uh, some protein on the grill and um, some potatoes and the sweet sw- smell of, uh, of a Weber barbecue. That's <laughs> my favorite. Um, celebrated. I know uh, I'm going to talk to my dad later, and I'm just very grateful for the years of, of being an example that he has been to me and also continuing to be a, a person that I go to for wisdom and for counsel, and I'm just grateful that he's still around. And for those of you who maybe have had a dad who has passed, um, I'm sure um, you feel a sense of, of grateful loss um, that you had that um, person in your life. Um, I, I just wanted to pause, too, and, and uh, give thanks uh, for the gift of being a father and also for um, the responsibility and also that the Lord would really help us to understand his love um, that he has for us as our heavenly, awesome Father. So will you pray with me? Father, um, your word declares to us that, that in love, you predestined us for adoption as your sons and daughters. You, you chose to love us before there was ever a tick on a clock, before there was time, Before there was earth, you knew us. You knew us by name. And you knew that we would fall. And you knew that we would make a mess of things. You knew that we would break our world. That we would break our marriages and our families. And yet you are a a gracious and loving and merciful father. uh, Rich in grace and mercy. And you clothe yourself in in our frail flesh and and you walked um, in our shoes, and you walked in this miry, broken world um, for the simple fact that you chose to love us, and that you chose to be broken on our behalf so that we could be made whole again. And we're told, Lord, that it is because of your love, the, the love of the Father for us, that you paid the price. Lord, may you Help us to understand, comprehend uh, the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That there is no end to it. Um, Not in this age, not in the age to come, or in a thousand ages. We will never come to the end of, to the full expanse of how much you love us. Our failure, Lord, is to believe it. And so we ask that you would help us to understand and believe in your love. And, and I pray for those who are here who are fathers. And I pray that you would grant them courage, boldness, strength. That you would enable them to be leaders in their homes. That they would be servants to their wives and to their children. That they would be models of humility and also of strength. Lord, will you meet with us in this time that we have, this short amount of time around your word. And may your spirit just empower your word. May your spirit empower your words through these lips in a way that only you can do. That only you can do. Lord, help my heart right now as as the one teaching to rely completely on your spirit and not on my gift. 
so that your people might hear you speak and that you might meet them in a very special way this morning. And I pray this in the name of our precious Savior, our King, the Lamb that was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you if you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at four verses this morning. Um, Galatians is over, and I'm kind of excited for a new summer series on the names of God. If you didn't get the picture, it's right behind me. The names of God, I've been thinking about doing this for some time. Um, Obviously, this is a summer series. We're going to only look at eight. There's a lot more names of God in the Bible, um, but for constraints of time, we're going to be selective. Now, you might be thinking, well, why focus on the names of God? In our culture, typically speaking, um, names are chosen for our children largely on the basis of family tradition or preference. So, for example, my name, Dan or Daniel. Now, this is a, a somewhat of a, a marital tension between my parents as to where that name came from. But my mom insists that I was named after my great-uncle Dan, who was named after my great-grandfather Daniel. And it goes back a, a couple other generations, too. My dad, of course, says, no, he was named after the Daniel in the Bible. And I love to watch him just argue over where my name came from. I like to think maybe it was biblical, but uh, I think my mom wins the argument most of the time. And that is, I was named after uh, an ancestor. Um, And a lot of you choose names because uh, it carries forward your family heritage. Others of us, you know, choose names for our children because we like them, because we have a preference for it. You know how it is husband and wife are talking about, sometimes arguing about what to name their son or daughter. She's like, George, well, George is a little bit too old-fashioned, and Ed, well, Ed's too short, and Dan sounds way too much like a swear word, like damn. Um, Then Winston sounds too British, but... Damien just rolls off the tongue. And so you choose the name that you like that sounds the coolest. I mean, that's, that's I'm being facetious, but you know, those are the kind of things that we do when we're, we're choosing names. And be, because of that, because our names are largely chosen based on family history or heritage or our preference, we, we don't always grasp the significance of a name. In the Bible, names have a lot of significance, especially when those names come from the Lord. When God told Abraham, I'm changing your name from Abram to Abraham, it was highly significant. When he changed Sarai's name to Sarah, it was highly significant. When he wrestled with Jacob and he changed his name from Jacob to Israel, it was significant. When heaven came to to, to Joseph and said, you're going to name your son Yeshua, Jesus, it was significant because it said something or taught something, reflected something about what God was going to do through that child. And it's even more so in terms of God's own names, the gift of being able to know God by name. And it is a tremendous gift to have the name of God. He's not a nameless person, but a name. Because those names are not just cool to him. It's like he didn't, for example, pick Yahweh because it sounds cool, or because he really likes how it looks in Hebrew, yud Hey vav Hey, that's cool. That's not why he chose that name. When he told Moses, I am that I am, or Yahweh, Yahweh, he gave that name to reveal something of himself. 
so that we could relate to him based upon what that name reveals. It's highly significant, and it's precious to know God's names. And his different names reflect different aspects of who he is. That is to say, his names are revelatory. They reveal his character and enable us to see him and know him and trust him in particular ways. And the name we're going to look at this morning, as you may have guessed, is the name Father. Now, I have to say it was just a stroke of brilliance. It took me three hours to figure out what should I talk about on Father's Day. Father, well, I think Noon's, Justin Noon says, wow, that's brilliant, Dan. Uh, no, it's seriously, I, I just thought, you know, this is a good time for us just to focus on, on a word that for most people is very, very rich in significance. I realize not every person has a good mental impression of the word father, but I think most of us do. And it's so rich and so full of things like power and authority and love. And so I, I hope and pray that you will sense not only God's love, but how the love of our Father and how the name Father should enable us to feel and live differently. And in particular, um, what Jesus points us to in this Matthew passage that Jesus is going to show his disciples how to dispel or quell their fears. And he's going to do it by pointing to that name. There's a lot of fear in our world. You know that. There's a lot of fear in this room. There's a lot of fear in my heart. And he's going to say, what dispels fear in my disciples' heart is a proper understanding of your father. So that's kind of the direction we're going to go, is, is how understanding God as Father quells or crushes or dispels our fears and enables us to live with a sense of confidence in who he is. That's where we're headed in these verses. As I said, we're only, only going to look at four. Um, but what I want to kind of set, because it's important, is, is the, kind of the general sense of chapter 10 in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the chapter where Jesus tells his disciples, basically, life as my disciple is not going to be like going to a sandals resort or a club med. Um, life as my disciple is going to be hard. It's going to be filled with hostility, division, and conflict. He's just painting a really realistic picture for those, his followers. And here, just to give you a sense of chapter 10, where he's laying out realistic expectations for those who are follow him, um, he says things like this. Verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He's basically saying, listen, at moments in history, the state is going to come down upon you. They're going to flog you and do all kinds of... Um, painful things. Or in verse 24, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. He's referring to the disciple and Jesus' teacher. Uh, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house uh, Beelzebul, which is a name for the prince of demons, he's talking about Jesus, and you know if you read the Gospels that that's what they accused Jesus of doing in his works. They accused him of actually doing things in the name and by the power of Satan. How much more will they malign those of his household? It's like, as they treated Jesus, so you can be, expect to be treated. 
as someone who follows him. That is, if you were a loyal follower of his. If you're kind of a compromised, no loyalty follower, and follower in name only, but not in heart, not in passion, conviction, faith, and devotion, chances are this is never going to happen because you're not a threat. So he's speaking the context of those who are his loyal followers. Or verse 34. For people who like to think that Jesus came to bring this loosey-goosey kind of soft peace into the world, he says, no, my life is going to be a division point. And your following me is going to be a division point. He said, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth, at least not the earthly peace that people think of. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. He's saying, the cost of following me for some people is going to cause division in some of the most painful places, and that is in family. Fathers, sons, mothers, daughters. There's, there's really no more close relationship than those relationships. He's saying that's, that's going to be the cost for some if you're going to be loyal to me. So he's kind of laid that out. This is, this is what it's going to look like for, am I popping in and out, um, for, to be my disciple. Now, uh, that's a timely word, in my opinion, and I think probably you would think so too. Um, especially as we march forward into the 21st century, when we can see and feel, and it's been documented, that hostility is growing for those who maintain a loyalty to both Jesus and his teachings. You know what I'm talking about. That is, the pressures are continuing to increase. And the stuff that he just spoke in chapter 10, we can fully expect that to happen. And, and are we, as God's people, prepared for that? That's why this chapter exists, to tell us, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is what can happen. These are the pressures of being a follower when a culture takes a decisively anti-Jesus approach. Well, in that context, you can imagine... And even maybe today in our context, there's tendency to be fearful. Fearful about political changes. Fearful about moral changes. Fearful for how those political changes may impact us legally um, as a church or other organizations. Or may impact you as a business owner or somebody who lives and works in an environment where you're going to be tested as to what you believe. There would be naturally fear. Or there could be fear of what's going on. So in the middle of this whole chapter on, um, on the difficulty and the division and the conflict and the hostility, Jesus says, don't be afraid, and he points to some reasons um, related to our Father. These are the verses. Verse 28 says, Jesus speaking, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, he only mentions father once in these four verses. But it peppers the whole chapter. 
verse 20, verse 32, verse 33. When Jesus is speaking of God, it is almost always with reference to Father. And here he names him through this chapter. This is God your Father. So he's pointing to certain things about the Father, and that he's saying, don't be afraid because of those things, these truths about our Father. One of them has to do with authority and power. That is, Mike, I'm only giving you two points here. Um, The fear of our Father's ultimate power over life and death or authority destroys fear within. Now, that sounds kind of like an irony because we're saying fear God and fear will be displaced or, or quelled. He's saying... On the one hand, don't fear this, but fear this. There's a deeper fear that dispels a not-so-deep fear. The first part of it is basically saying, listen, don't fear what men can do to your physical body. That's obvious. Don't fear what humans, the political system, can do to your skin and to your organs and to your brain activity. You think about it for a moment, you realize that that limited authority to take someone's physical life really isn't that much authority. Here's what I mean. The fact of the matter is, you're going to die anyway. With or without human instrumentation, cancer or old age, everyone in this room, unless Jesus comes back and raises the dead and calls those who are living into a resurrection state, the fact of the matter is we're all going to die. The tissue is going to die, the brain activity is going to go bye-bye, and so is the, the organs are not going to work anymore. It's going to happen. All humans can do is move up the date. That's all they can do. Don't be afraid of what's already going to happen. It's like the image that came to my mind was a sandcastle. You know, build a sandcastle on the beach like you do with your kids. And someone comes along and kicks your sandcastle down. Imagine how absurd it would be to get all upset and decide you're going to slit your wrist because someone knocked your your, your sandcastle down. It's like the bottom line is is that the tide's going to come in and the sandcastle's going to go anyway. You know, Jesus is saying, someone wants to step on your life, listen, the tide's going to come in anyway, at some point or another. And you know what? Again, I realize, and I don't want to be insensitive about the importance of physical life here. I mean, it is a gift. But at the same time, I mean, it's a shortcut to be with the one you love the most. The Lord, Paul could say, listen, if I live, then it's Christ. In other words, it's about making much of Christ in my life, in my ministry, in my teaching, and leadership, and tent making, and all that's about Christ. But if I die, that's gain. And I'd much prefer this. So you want to step on my sandcastle? Go ahead. Because I'm going to die anyway. And I'd rather be with him to, 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 to die as gain, he said. So Paul's basically saying, listen, um, you don't need to fear that. And, and, if, and if you can not fear physical death, well, they're not going to really fear anything. But then he goes on to say the, the way in which you can not fear death is actually to have a more profound and deeper fear. Fear him, fear the Father, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a completely different kind of authority and different kind of power. For God the Father to... Take that immortal, eternal part of you and imprison it, separate from all of his goodness and love forever. That's power, and that's authority. 
Man has limited temporal power over the flesh, but God has eternal power over the soul and body. Power. That's one of the things that should come to your mind when you think of a father. That's something you feel innately as a child about your father. You remember being on the playground and you'd argue with your buddy, my dad's bigger than your dad. You know, my dad could beat up your dad. Like, what in the world were we ever thinking, arguing about stuff like that? Like, our parents would ever fight each other. But it's, okay, we've done that. I've done that. Um, But have you ever stopped to wonder why it is we don't say that about our moms? My mom's bigger than your mom. Well, that could be bad. (laughs) Uh, My mom's stronger than your mom. My mom could beat up your mom. It's like, we just never say things like that. Why? Because the heart of a child intrinsically knows that the power in the family concentrates itself on the father. That's not a sexist statement. That is a truth statement. In the same way that when my kids scrape their knee or cut their lip, they never call my name. It's always mom. When they want power, they go to dad. When they want affection, love, and nurturing, they go to mom. That's not a sexist statement. It's a true statement. The idea of a father is one of power and authority. Um, you know, and like I said, I've had a blessing of a good dad, but I've watched my father get between an angry Doberman pincher and his kids because he's in a position of power to take care of his kids. I've watched him march down the road, knock on the door of a, of another parent of a bully and deal with the issue. Cause my dad, dad's fathers, one of the things that is innate God designed it this way to a father is the center of power and authority. And Jesus is saying, listen. And by the way, not just fearing power. I don't think the father wants us to fear in a servile kind of panic sort of way as if God loses his temper and all of a sudden blasts you to hell. That's not the God revealed in scripture who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God who is proportionate and just. But I'll tell you what, he wields that authority And he is the center of power. And Jesus is saying, listen, learn to respect and feel and revere the power of the one that Jesus enabled us to call Father. Now that you give us a sense of of confidence of knowing that our Father has that kind of authority and that kind of power, not just over the flesh, but over the spirit and over all of life. Jesus is saying, you know, fear somebody, fear him. You get that in your head, you know what? You're not going to be that afraid of what people can do to you because you know who holds the real power and who who holds the the real reins in the world. Fear him and your fear of the political system and your fear of of being fired um, will be dispelled because you know who's in charge. It's your father. Jesus made it so that you could call him by that name. That's why he gave it to us, so we'd understand that power and authority. That's power, to be able to condemn and give life. You know, I, almost every week I meditate on a passage of Scripture to remind me of this very truth and to put things in perspective. When the Apostle John said, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. They couldn't manage to stay in the presence of Almighty God the Father. And no place was found for them. 
Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Great and small, presidents and paupers alike, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, all of them, were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. In other words, everybody's there. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death is placed in the second death. Death dies. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. End of chapter 20 of Revelation. That, my friends, that's power. And your father has that power. You learn to fear and reverence and stand in awe of God as father who sits on the throne, who has the power over the soul to condemn or give life. And you're going to find that your fear of people is going to diminish drastically. That's one of the things that's conveyed in the name father. Power and authority. But I I love how Jesus teaches because he'll often put things side by side that otherwise you'd think don't go together. Because right next to this image of power, fear the one who can cast both body and soul in hell. He goes on to talk about his, his minute, detailed compassion. Love and power side by side. And that second piece, that compassion, that, that care, um, also alleviates our fears. Or point two, the faith in our Father's providential care over the details of our lives or his love destroys fear. That's verse 29 and following. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall. Not one will fall to the ground apart from your father or apart from your father's will. That's how powerful this will is and how detailed and loving it is. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. It's care. Like, for Jesus to make the point, he doesn't go for the big things. He goes for the small things, you know, sparrows. Apparently, the poorest of poor, if they wanted to have protein or meat in their diet, they would purchase sparrows. Kind of a sick thought to me, but that's what they would do. It's a two-for-one penny. Most of us, myself, wouldn't bend over to scrape a penny off the ground. It's not worth the expenditure of energy or my back, much less half a penny. Half a penny for a sparrow, one penny for two. And say not, not one of those half-cent sparrows, not one of them, not a single one, falls to the ground unless the Lord says yes. That implies that God is about the work of feeding, protecting, and caring for sparrows worth, in the economic system of the day, half a cent. He cares about that. He cares about it. Now, granted, we make way too many bald jokes here at Parkway Community Church. Get it. We have an abnormally high percentage of guys who shave their heads here. I don't know why. Maybe John Barry knows. I don't know. But he goes on to just say, I mean, what kind of trivial detail is how many hairs do you have on your head? It's, it is trivial information. Who really wants to know that? Who's going to go through the process of counting just how many you have? 
And they're falling out constantly and growing back in. Who's going to know that kind of detailed information? Of course, understand the Lord doesn't count. The Lord always thinks spontaneously conclusions. He doesn't have to go through the process of figuring out what numbers are. Mathematics is not a process to him. He just simply knows it. Why would he even care about that? But but the point is that he understands the minutest detail. Every atom. And he cares. Not just the big things. He's just not concerned about what happens in Washington or Sacramento or, or the people who are in position in power. It's like, no, man. God manages and cares for every little speck of creation because he cares that much. And that's how exhaustively um, knowledgeable he is. Everybody in this room, he knows the details of your life. And he cares about the details of your life. Now, if sparrows and the number of hairs on your head is something that actually the Lord takes notice of and cares about, how much more those created in his image for whom he sent his only son to die. Sparrow, person who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. There's, there's, there's a, despite what environmentalists might say, there's a huge difference in value between a half-cent sparrow and a human being, especially a human being that God has bought with the blood of his son. If he cares about those things, you can bet he cares about the details of your life. If he's going to make sure that sparrows are protected and so forth until he designs them to fall to the ground, then he is involved in every detail of your life. Your finances. The phone calls that are made to you at the last minute. What happens when you have a flat tire and someone comes along just at the right time? Um, he's, cons- he's into the details of, of your work life. That, he's everywhere. And if, if we're able to see and believe and understand that that's how exhaustively caring our Father is for all of his creation and that he cares about the details of your life, not just the the big things, then you're not going to be as afraid. The problem is we live in a culture where, by and large, we think that we are the victims of this kind of chaotic, random chance where it's a survival of the fittest and life is a mistake. I, I was born by mistake, random act of, in a chaotic universe, and my life will be taken probably as a random act. Well, in that kind of universe, that kind of worldview, who wouldn't be afraid? And Jesus is saying, that's not how I want my followers to see the world. I want you to understand, this is my father's world. He owns everything in it, and he cares about everything in it, and he cares about you. And if you can see your life that way and and understand his love is all around you, his care is all around you, there's not a single second that it's not around you. With all of that power and authority that he has, well then, you're going to be able to live your life with a sense of enduring peace and confidence. You're not going to be afraid of the random act of hostility. I mean, even in the context of chapter 10, when all the stuff is happening, you know, the kings and the, the synagogues are flogging. It's like, understand, God is there. Your father is there. He's there. And he'll be with you. He cares about those details. He'll sustain you through those times. And he's going to give you an opportunity, according to the verse that we read earlier, for you to declare just how great he is in the process of those negative things. This is... He wants us to know as him as our father, both in the, 
detailed love and care and providential provision for us and also in his power authority. Those are those two things that are communicated. And that's this is not exhaustive. It's just to say these two things, perhaps more than anything, um, are revealed in that name, Father. Ultimate of power and authority over life, all of life and death. And at the same time, somebody who is exhaustively caring about and providing for every detail of your life, power and love, communicated in this single name, Father. So I want to ask you, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of this morning? Something in regards to your family, your health, your work, your future, past, sin, failures. What is it that you're afraid of? Only you know, I don't. I know what I'm afraid of. And can you receive the teaching of Jesus here? It says the way in which those fears, the only way that they can be alleviated is to come to grips in your heart with the fact that Jesus has made it possible for you to have a relationship personally with the Father who holds all authority over that situation and is intimately involved in the details of that situation. Are you willing to trust Father? I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I'm going to trust these two things that Jesus told me to trust. I am going to take him at his word as we sang a few moments ago. I'm going to trust that he wields absolute power over life and death. And I'm going to trust that he is in the details of my life. Lord, help me to believe that my father loves me like this. Will you pray that now? If, if you're struggling with your faith and you're living in fear, will you just take a moment and just say, Father, help me to trust that you have all power and authority and that you love me as a child more than any human has ever loved a human child. You love me. Will you enable and ask the Lord to make this name dispel your fears? Your father is on the throne. Your father cares. Your father wields all power. And your father's in the details of your life. Make this a moment of sur surrender to him.